When asked, what do Buddhas teach? The Buddha said, do good deeds, avoid causing harm, purify your mind. Do good deeds, avoid causing harm, purify your mind. <clears throat> These are the most basic expression of the Buddhist teachings. All of the Dharma practices that the Buddha taught fall within this range. And all Dharma practices cultivate wholesome qualities of mind and in the process subdue, put down, minimize the unwholesome qualities of mind. So all of these paramis that I've been speaking about are applied mindfulness practices. Foundation for insight. And all of the Buddha's injunctions to do good, avoid causing harm, and develop your mind is accomplished in the practice of generosity. Generosity is the first of the paramis. It's, it's a practice that isn't Buddhist, really isn't Buddhist. It's human. It's a human practice. And it's said that the Buddha would always speak about, when he was speaking to new interested students, potential students, he would always speak about the practice of generosity first, explaining its benefits and its limitations. And then move on to the practice of sila, benefits, limitations, practice of tranquility, and the practice of insight. In fact, generosity is the uh, practice of letting go. Now we know from the Four Noble Truths that there's the truth of dukkha, and the Second Noble Truth is that this dukkha is caused by craving, clinging, holding on. So clearly, the end of dukkha has to be from letting go. <clears throat> and generosity is that first basic practice of just learning how to let go. It's, yes, we, when we practice generosity, we let go of something, but what we most let go of is attachment. We learn how to let go of attachment itself. And we can offer time, material resources, knowledge, energy, but it's first letting go of the attachment to what is traditionally under, understood to be mine, for my benefit. Mahasi Sayadaw, in his uh, encouraging counsel, uh, little reminders of how to practice, he said, it is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, one's happiness, and one's humanity. Now, how does that work? How does being generous lead to wealth, happiness, and humanity? Well, the first element of practicing generosity is to look at your motivation. You know, and if the primary the primary element is to remove attachment from holding on to something, and that is for the benefit of others. Whenever you offer something to others, it's for their benefit. The Buddha said there are these two rare and precious human beings. Those who are initiate care for others and those who are grateful. So out of our minds, out of our practice, out of our 
seeing clearly the conditions in the world, can we proactively act compassionately? Can we express the gratitude we have for the abundance of our life and share it? So, not only do we purify our, our mind of attachment, <clears throat> excuse me, but we bring happiness to ourselves because when we uh, practice generosity, it, it it makes you happy. You feel joyful. You're not holding on. You get delighted. There's wisdom in practicing generosity. <clears throat> and at the same time, you don't feel jealous. You don't feel averse to the person you're offering to. You don't feel stingy. You feel an abundance in life. You feel like you have an abundance to share. Even if, by some other standards, you may have very little. Nonetheless, if you have anything, you have, can have an abundance. <coughs> if you recognize it, you can share it. So the wealth that generosity uh, shows us or brings us is that we do have an abundance and then we bring, we by practicing generosity, we have a wealth of wholesomeness, of happiness, of joy, of understanding. It's also said that when we practice generosity, when you think, oh, I'm going to practice generosity, I'm going to offer somebody something. You know, just thinking about it, you can get happy. And when you're actually practicing, offering, giving, giving someone something, when you see them and you offer them a gift and you see that they're happy, you also get happy. And then after you've offered someone something, anytime you think about it, you can be happy. As Manindra, one of our teachers, used to say, if you want to be really happy, practice a lot of generosity and remember it. <laughs> anytime you remember it, you'll be happy again. So this... Happiness happens in three phases, before, during, and after. Years ago, before I went to Burma even, I was living in uh, Western Massachusetts, and uh, I spread a newspaper article about a potter, uh, a fellow who makes pottery in a Japanese way, and it's a wood-fired kill. And on his property, he had uh, converted an old New England farm to um, a garden, a workshop, and a display room. And he built a Japanese tea house where he invited someone from Japan to come and offer the tea ceremony every summer. And it was for free. So it was nearby, so I said, well, I've, I like tea. And <laughs> so I went, I went to uh, see and it was a beautiful place, old, old New England farmhouse that he'd fixed up with great, beautiful gardens all around, all the buildings. And, um, and I looked at his pottery, and it was really interesting. It was unique. It was very, very nice and very expensive. And I walked around enjoying the look. And then uh, I went to the tea ceremony, and I spent a couple hours just hanging out and walking around and looking at things, doing the tea ceremony. So I wanted to thank him for making it available for me and others. But he, he was traveling at the time. He wasn't there. So I found out when he would be back, and I wanted to go see him and thank him. And I wanted to take him something, because I felt that I'd received something from him. So not having much at the time, uh, I used to bake bread on weekends um, as a builder. 
and they ate a lot of bread. So I'd bake six loaves, and I would give one away. So made my bread, and I took him a loaf. And he was, uh, at the time I thought, more of an elder man, but he's younger than I am now. <laughs> wow. Okay. So anyway, and he lived alone, and he was doing his work. So I went to see him and spent some time with him and talked to him, and he showed me more details of what he had there. It was just really informative, and it's really, really wonderful. And uh, I eventually ended up doing some work for him, uh, doing some building, building some cabinets for some of his pottery. But um, after I offered him the bread, he said, well, you know, thank you very much. You know, the next time I fire my kill, would you be interested in helping? And I said, sure, why not? So in the middle of winter, <laughs> he only fires his kill once each season. In the middle of winter, it was on a full moon night and freezing cold in New England. Uh, he's got this kill going, so he called me up and said, I'm, going to fire, I'm firing my kill now. Would you come by and help me keep it going during the evening? I said, sure. So I went by, and he gave me the instructions of how to throw the little sticks of wood into each of these three chambers of this roaring fire, and then to monitor the temperature on the things and write them all down. And so he gave me the instructions. I saw what I had to do, and he'd been doing it for 12 hours already, so he said he had to go get some sleep. I said, okay. So he went off at you know, 8 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock at night, and I was left to work through the evening, through the night. So it was a stick, stick thing, trying to get the temperature up to the, the right temperature. And, you know, I would throw things in and have to wait a while to like burn. So I'd step outside, and it was gorgeous. So clear, and the stars were out, it was full moon. But in by the kill, it was like 100 plus degrees. It was like roasting. I was sweating. You know, just a t-shirt on, and I'd go out and get cooled off. Anyway, so I did that. He came out in the morning, and he said, geez, thanks, you can go home now, and he finished it off. He said, when I when it cools down, after the fire, when it cools down, I'll invite you over, and you can help me unload it. Great. So a couple of days went by, called me over, we unloaded it. And he would take every piece out by hand and set them on the floor. And when they would come out, he would look at them, and anything that was a 10 in his evaluation, went over in there. And everything else just laid out on the floor. All the cups here, all the saucers there, all the plates here, the round plates, the square plates, the big bowls, whatever. And so we took several hours to unload it. And at the end of the unloading it, he says, you know, you can, you can take your pick. You can have anything you like, anyone, except the tent. I understood that. They were from museums and places like that. So I looked around and I found something that I liked. It was a little bowl. It was a, it was a, a usable sized bowl for a person to eat out of. And uh, he was really happy to give it to me. I was really happy to get it. And I used that bowl all the time. I used it at home. When I went on retreat, I took it with me on retreat. So I'd have my, you know, it was just the right size. Not too big and not too big. <laughs> just right. <laughs> If I wanted more than that bowl, I knew I was my eyes were bigger than my belly. <clears throat> so I really invested a lot in that bowl, a lot of attachment. Then I went off to Burma. I went off to Burma to practice in the monastery. I put everything in my truck, parked it in the garage, left it. And I was gone for five years. And then when I came back, I was really high on the Dharma, so to speak, and I had a lot of gratitude for my Dharma teachers, my Western Dharma teachers. So I 
wanted to offer them gift, gifts. So I looked through all the things I had, and one of the few things I had of any value to me was this bowl. So I made it as a gift to one of my teachers, who had just had a house built. And she received it, and I noticed for a few years, at least after that, she had this bowl on the mantle of her fireplace in her living room. It wasn't like it was being used, but it was more like an art decoration. So she must have appreciated it, because she had it there in a notable, visible place. And then I lost track of it. I didn't, or whatever. I just didn't notice it. But, you know, another ten years goes by, and I was in, invited into uh, Cambridge to by a Dharma benefactor to spend some, an, even, an afternoon just talking about the Dharma and whatnot. And this woman had practiced a lot and done a lot of practice, and so she'd been very generous also, giving things away. So after an afternoon in the garden, we went inside to finish the conversation at nightfall and to have a cup of tea. So she says, well, I went into her room, into her um, converted carriage house, actually, and there was almost nothing in there. You know, there was a tree over in the corner, and there was a little two-inch Buddha on the mantelpiece, and then there was a couple of chairs on either side of a coffee table over in the corner. One was a two-person chair, one a one-person chair. So she said, we can sit over there. So had our tea, went over there. I sat down, she sat down, and I looked on the coffee table. There's that bowl. That's a really nice bowl you have there. (laughs) Oh yeah, she says, that was a gift from one of my teachers. It's really nice, I really like it. You know, I really feel honored to get that bowl. And I said, yeah, do you know the history of that bowl? She didn't know. And so I told her the story. And she was kind of amazed that we had this uh, kind of life already before it got to her. And when I think now of that bowl, I think, you know, that bowl was offered to me. I offered it to my teacher. She offered it to her benefactor. I was happy to receive it. I was happy to pass it on. They were happy to receive it. They were happy to pass it on. The happiness that that bowl has brought to us is far more valuable than the cost of the bowl. And I don't feel like I've lost a thing. It, it, every time I think of it, every time I tell the story, I get happy again. You know, just thinking about that. And that's just, that's the way generosity works. You know, if you're not holding on, you know, and you can share like that, you don't lose it. You know, you get the happiness from it, and you never lose that. Nothing is ever lost by sharing. Everyone benefits. Buddha said, If beings knew, as I know, the result and benefit of generosity, they would not let any opportunity go by without sharing. Now you have to wonder, what did the Buddha know that he could say wouldn't let any opportunity go by without sharing what you have? Well, if we keep paying attention to our minds and lives, we'll probably come to have some understanding of that. But it's said that those who practice generosity are loved by everyone. They have a good reputation. They're not afraid to appear in any group of people. And it's said that 
they'll have a happy rebirth in heaven or as a wealthy human when they pass away. Well, we don't know about that one. But we do know that if you practice generosity, you feel confident, you feel at ease with others, and people like you. Not just because you're going to be generous to them, but because of your, you know, your connectability with others. When I was practicing in the monastery in Burma, there was one, one monk there who was just a big guy. He was really energetic. He was one of the main teachers. And he was generous it, all, all the time. He was just known to be very generous with his time, with his energy, with his material goods. So for a period of time, for a year or so, he invited me to come over to his place each evening for, I don't know, for an hour of just talking English. He wanted to learn more English. So I would go and we would just talk, try to talk about anything, you know. Every time he would offer me something before I left. It might be a bottle of soda, it might be a book, it might be a pen, it might be an umbrella, it might be, you know, sometimes it was a set of robes. Never let me leave, even though he saw me every day. Never let me leave without offering something. And he had in his uh, in his cottage, uh, right just inside the door, he had this cabinet that was full of jars of jaggery. Jaggery is palm sugar candy. It's just sweet. It's just sugar. But it's what yogis who are doing eight precepts can have after lunch. So he had it there for anybody in the monastery to come and get some jaggery in the evening if they needed a little pick-me-up. And there was a steady stream of people. You know, yogis from the monastery coming in to, you know, that was his generosity. He was a well, well loved, well loved man. Generosity is also not only a practice of letting go and a practice of happiness, but it's also a practice of compassion out of compassion for others' needs and our own development of heart and mind. It's not just the needs of others that is the motivation for practicing generosity. But when we understand that, the, that generosity is really the development of our own heart, that can become as powerful a motivation. So out of compassion for our own development of mind, so that we suffer less, we can be motivated to practice generosity. So, I'm going to tell a story that some of you have already heard a few times. <laughs> Years ago, I used to work with a group in Portland, and uh, I would go see them several times a year, half a dozen times a year, and when I would go to Portland, I would stay in a hotel in town, and get my meals in a restaurant nearby, and then spend the day with them, doing some time work. But at the time, there were a lot of homeless people living there. And every street, there was homeless people, panhandlers, beggars of one sort or another. And I've always lived in the country, and I just wasn't familiar being around so many. Of course, I'd seen a few here and there, but not so many. <coughs> And it was, I was uncomfortable. And I realized that I didn't, I, I was not comfortable. I was afraid. Uh, I tried to avoid them. Uh, I didn't know how to think about them. I, I didn't, I, I kind of had a, not a very good opinion of them. 
and, but mostly it was I was scared of them. So this went on for you know my first few trips to to town, and uh, at some point I I recognized what was going on that I was suffering. I was afraid. I was avoiding. I was confused, and I also realized that they're not going to do anything for my suffering. Only I can do something about my suffering. And so I said, wow, i got to do something about this. So I said, all right, I'm going to make it a practice to greet them and to offer them something. I'm going to practice generosity. So I would no, not just walk by and toss the money into a hat or a box or whatever was there, but I would stop and I would talk to them. As they're sitting on the, on the ground, I scooch down to kind of have eye contact with them. As they're standing up, I have eye contact with them. And I would always ask them about their life. How, how's it going today? That got some good, funny answers, interesting answers. You know? And then I would you know, just you know, ask them about their life and you know, what their sign said and their dog and whatever else they needed. And then I would always ask them, well, what do you need? Because you always want something. You know, or what do you what are you going to get with uh, you know if you get the funds what are you going to get you know and they're going to get a you know a meal or they're going to get a place to stay that night you know in the shelter or they're going to you know get a hit of something you know but it would just be a conversation like they were an ordinary person in fact they are what I realized is these are just ordinary people like us they they have a condition in their life that requires that they live on the street that they panhandle. You know, but, and I could have compassion for them. I didn't feel sorry for them so much as just have compassion for them because it's got to be a challenging lifestyle. And then I would offer them some token of support, a dollar, two, maybe five. And they were always grateful, very grateful to receive it. And I was always happy. And what I realized from doing that, and I would... Not, not all of them, but a lot, every day. Uh, what I realized from doing that is when we take the opportunity to connect with someone like that, it acknowledges their humanity and your own. And so practicing generosity in that way really brings home that we're all, we're all here doing the same thing. You know, we're all humans just getting by on the face of this earth. And uh, if I can offer something to support another's getting by, it's acknowledging their humanity and my own. And the gift we give is always love. Always. It's because you care. It's because you, you want to see them you know, be a little, you know, a little happier, a little more healthy, a little more well-fed, something. That's love. And when you practice love like that, you feel good. The cost of, the cost of feeling good, the cost of a sense of well-being, the cost of feeling, you know, joyful, is a little bit of time, a little bit of courage, and a dollar. Wow. That's it. Generosity, letting go, happiness, it's all available if we practice. If we are willing 
to acknowledge our humanity and our compassion and our abundance. Now, there's many reasons that we don't practice generosity. Let's face it, there's a, there's a huge need for more than we could ever supply. Well, don't let that be the cause for doing nothing. Because like Mother Teresa, she couldn't solve the problem of the homeless dying on the streets of Calcutta. But she could care for this one each day. And we might, we might not be able to solve the, the homeless problem in our community, or the drug addiction problem, or whatever it is. But we can care for someone. We can acknowledge our humanity. We also might think that, oh, it's only others' needs that's being met when I practice generosity. But actually it's not. We're meeting our own needs for human connection and our own development of heart and mind through practicing generosity. We might also feel that they might be unworthy. You know, like, well, they got themselves into this situation, they can get themselves out. But once you start talking to some homeless people or street people, you realize that, you know, they have, they got the odds stacked against them sometimes, whether it's mental health issues or, you know, no, they, have, they have challenges. And, and yet, they're human. They feel. They respond to love. Just like us. And sometimes we're just, you know, we don't feel like we have enough. We feel like, I mean, we're a little bit protective or guarded with our resources. You know, or maybe we're just stingy. We don't want other people to have what we have. And that's sometimes. Sometimes we just hoard for our own use. But, you know what? So, on the streets, I would give a dollar or two, and then I'd go to Starbucks and have my own coffee for four. Right? Go to Starbucks and get your coffee for four. So, when I was practicing in Burma at the Sairutejaniya's monastery, periodically, not every morning, but a lot of mornings, they would have this black, sweet, milky tea. Oh, it was good. I mean, it was good. You know, when you're on retreat and you don't have any, anything else, it's just good. So, I made an offer that any morning that they didn't, that it wasn't on the menu, that I would offer it. Because I wanted, I wanted. <laughs> Self-interested generosity. Yes? Okay. So, you know, the day came and, you know, there was, it wasn't on the menu or whatever. And so, they said that they would offer tea to everyone uh, that day. And there were about a couple hundred people there. So I was going to offer tea. I was going to pay to have tea offered and served to everyone in the monastery on that day. So I did. And I watched. I watched and everybody was enjoying the tea. People like tea in the morning. you know. And then I got the bill. $2.50 for 200 people to have a cup of tea. And it made me think, now wait a minute, Two fifty. First, four dollars for my own cup of Starbucks, which is going to make me happier. Think about that. I mean, it's just—it's just amazing, you know, what we, what we think we can or cannot do. If we don't try, if we don't try, we won't learn. But if we try, you learn some amazing things about yourself, like that. 
A wise person, the Buddha said, gives a gift carefully, gives it with his or her own hands, and gives it showing respect, gives a valuable gift, and gives it with the understanding understanding that something good will come of it. To give respectfully, to give personally, to have the understanding that it's a good thing to do and something good will come from it. Visakha was the Buddha's chief patroness. She said, When I remember my acts of generosity, I'll be glad. When I'm glad, then I'll be happy. When my mind is happy, my body will be calm and tranquil. When my body's tranquil, I will feel pleasant. And when I feel pleasant, my mind will become collected. And that will bring about the development of the spiritual faculties, the spiritual powers, and the factors of awakening from generosity. Reflecting on our generosity brings about all the qualities for awakening. So after I'd been in Burma for four years, a little more than four years, I was making plans to leave, or I was going to Thailand for a while, and Malaysia and Australia, and back to the States. And um, these two women came to my, the door of my little cottage in Rangoon, and they said, uh, I, didn't, I hadn't met them before, they spoke English, Burmese women, and they said, oh, we'd like to, uh, you got to meet our teacher. I said, I've met a lot of teachers, I don't, I, you know, another, another Buddhist monk, another Burmese Buddhist monk, and uh, this is their family, their family, uh, the family's Sayadaw. So I said, ah, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy here, and I've met the teachers I need. And they said, no, 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 you, you, you've got to meet our teacher. I said, ah, okay. Well, anyway, after, they were insistent. So I said, okay, all right, we can go. So they came back, uh, you know, a couple of days later, after having made an appointment with the, the senator to bring me over. And so they got in the car, or got in the back of a truck, and we were going to visit him. And on the way, they told me about this monk that he had been um, where where he was staying now was in North North Okalapa, and uh, he'd been there for thirty some years. And he'd actually been the first Dharma teacher at the monastery where I was staying when it first opened in nineteen forty nine, and he'd been teacher there for ten years. And it, during those ten years, it became very popular, and just hundreds, thousands of people were coming, and he got. Overworked, I guess. Just wanted to move on, and after ten years, he could he could leave. And so he went to find a place to have a monastery, and he found this little little place. And he'd been there for thirty years. And when they told me, they said, "Yeah." And he, you know, he just lives very simply. He doesn't have any fancy buildings. He's just got wooden buildings. He doesn't have a lot of big cement buildings. And for many years. Only recently did he even get electricity. And he wouldn't allow a phone, and he didn't have paved sidewalks or anything in the monastery. It was just like a piece of jungle in the middle of, not in the middle of Rangoon, but close to Rangoon. And they just said he's very simple, and you know, he just does his own practice. And he has a few monks with him. And there's a few women that, uh, you know, elder women, when they've finished their families or their husbands have passed away or whatever, 
they often go to the monastery to live and to help keep the place clean and to live. And he built a dormitory for them. And there was one big meditation hall there. And they said that the people in the neighborhood would come to practice with him at night. In fact, when we got there, his little grove of, you know, an acre or two of trees with these little wooden buildings was in the middle of this big urban sprawl. And I thought, kind of interesting. You know, and what had happened is people heard, people that had practiced with him in Rangoon knew that he'd moved out there and they moved out there to be with him to get his teaching. And so they would work during the day and they would come every night to meditate and, you know, to do their practice and he would give some kind of instruction. And that's the way it been for 30 years. So I went and I talked to him and just asked him for some advice. And you know, his advice was very simple. You know, I said, I'm, I've been here for four, four and a half years or whatever, and I'm going back to the States soon. And I just wondered if he had any advice for me. And at the time, you know, you, you don't know what you're going to get. You know, it could be a whole hour-long discourse. It could be not much. So he said, well, when you go back to America, it'll be very different than here. But if you continue to do your practice, everything will be okay. That was it. If you continue to do your practice, everything will be okay. Well, I didn't understand the sim- simple profundity of that, really, because it's hard to keep doing your practice, isn't it? So, I wanted to practice with him, so I got permission from him. He said, yes, I could come practice with him. I got permission from the government, needed permission from the government to stay, to move anywhere in, in Burma. Burma was under martial law at the time. And uh, so I got permission. I went and stayed with him for a couple of weeks. When I got there, I said, well, where, where should I practice? So he brought me out back of his building to where he does his practice when he's there. It's a long building. It's probably 60 feet long. It's about six feet wide. There's a bed at one end and a toilet at the other. And he would go in there and practice. He'd just do his walking in there, and he'd sit, and walking, and he'd sit, walking, and sit. And the windows, were, the windows along the sides, had shutters on them so that you couldn't see out. You could only see the ground down there, but at least the, the breeze came through. And so you go in there, it's like you don't see anything. So he said, you can, you can practice here. I said, okay, what time is alms round? And he said, oh, we only got a couple of weeks, so we'll go on alms round. He and the other monks would go on alms round, and they would get the food and share it with me. I said, okay, great. And so I went in there, and that I'm doing my practice. You know, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sleep. Sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sleep. Sitting, walking. Well, after three or four days, you know, you get a little bit cabin fever. <laughs> That'd be crazy, you know. I, I want to go out. I want to kind of go to the monastery and look around. Kind of like distract myself. <laughs> so I, you know, went to the door to, went to, the door to, to go out. And uh, it was just a couple steps down. I went to the door, opened the door, and he's standing right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, he didn't, he didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Burmese. I looked at him, and he looked at me, and I felt encouraged to continue practicing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm back in another week. walking, 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 really got Thinking, 
Yeah, I like the glow, but I don't know. <laughs> Look around. So finally I got the courage up. Went to the door to go out again. He's standing right there. <laughs> you know, when you're around people that have minds like that, you get very mindful quick. <laughs> you know, because you just know there's, there's something pretty special there. Well, on the last day that I was going to be there, last morning, he said, you can go on alms round with us. So I got dressed in robes and went out to get in line at 6 o'clock with, or 5.30, whatever it was, with all the monks. There was about a dozen monks, ten monks, maybe, I don't know. And uh, he was at the head of the line. I was about number four or five back. So we started going out to the monastery. And we got to the edge of the forest where his little monastery ended and suburb- suburbia started. The sprawl started. And when he got there, he stepped aside and he waved the other monks to go by, to go past him. And when I came by, he pulled me out of the line and sent the other monks going out that way. And he said, he indicated that I was to follow him. He turned around and went back into the monastery. But before I, before I turned around to follow him, I looked at where the monks were going. And just outside the monastery, for as far as I could see, hundreds of people lined up to offer alms to the monks that day. Hundreds. I mean, I just saw the wall along the side of the road. But we went out the back way. He went through the monastery, and then we went out the back way, some dusty dirt, just dirt streets, uh, not even for cars, just for bicycles and ox carts. Then we walked, you know, I don't know, 10 minutes or 10, 12 minutes or so, through these back alleys and, you know, of this slum, really, something like a slum. And following him, it was like following the Buddha. It's like, it felt so... I mean, it's just like, you know, 2,500 years ago. There were no cars, there was no electricity, there was nothing. It was just shacks and dirt road. Then when we turned a corner and came into view of um, a little marketplace, then somebody said, oh, the monks are coming, the monks are coming. So we went to where there was the first person wanted to offer something. We stood there. Everybody around didn't expect him to be doing his own around there. They knew that he usually took the route over there. They didn't expect him to be here. But when they saw him, then everybody, everybody that was around came to offer him something, him and I something. And we just stood there while dozens of people came and gave us little things that they bought at the shops or some rice or whatever they had. And, you know, we got, our bowls got full and one, somebody in the market gave some little boys plastic bags. We dumped our bowls of stuff into the bags and went on. And he took me on a two-hour alms round that day, places where he didn't usually go. But everywhere he went, people knew him. And they all, and, you know, as soon as somebody said, oh, well, the monk's coming, everybody would come to offer. And we went like that for two hours, and we had a whole gaggle of temple boys carrying all these bags of rice <laughs> and curries and flowers, and it was just all kinds of stuff. You know, and we got back to the monastery, and we ate, and the women that were there ate, and then everything else that was collected was given away that day, every day, because monks can't keep food overnight. And so in the monastery, no food overnight. Everything's given away to the poor people, every day. And this is how he'd lived for 30 years. He's just there doing his practice. People come and want to practice with him, so he has a hall for them. 
he goes on his alms round and they support him and a few monks. And they come in the evening to practice and he gives them the Dharma. 30 years. Now his little, his little two acres is in this huge ball. People have practiced. They want to practice with him. He was the center of their life, the Dharma center of their life. You know, when we go back to our village, we go back to our home, we go back to our city, our suburb, whatever it is, we don't have a following like that. But our practice of the Dharma is a gift to everyone that we share life with. You don't have to teach, you don't have to preach, you don't have to proselytize, you just have to live the Dharma within you. The Dharma, the Buddha said, protects those who protect the Dharma. The gift of the Dharma excels all other forms of giving. And when we practice the Dharma, we give our Dharma to those we share life with. This is the gift of practice. So even though it seems like we're here practicing in a kind of a selfish way, just for our own thing, we're not doing good for everybody out there that obviously needs a lot of compassion and action. Actually, we are practicing compassion. Compassion for ourselves in doing this practice, and it will be compassionate to share our life with others. Practicing like this is a real act of generosity. Offering something to others that you can't buy. As Mahasi Sayadaw said, it is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth or sense of abundance, for one's happiness, and for one's humanity. This is our practice of generosity. That monk was Shweyumin Sayadaw, that Sayadaw Utejaniya's teacher. I didn't know it at the time, but later he was practicing with him. So let's sit and let these words settle down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.